and welcome to the Paediatric Anesthesia Journal's Featured Article of the Month podcast for November 2023. These monthly podcasts are published on the journal's website and you can also subscribe to them via iTunes, Google Podcasts and Podbean. My name is Dr. Sumit Das and I'm one of the journal's education editors. This month's featured article is entitled Perioperative Management of Infant Inguinal Hernia Surgery a review of the recent literature. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome the lead author of this article, Dr. Fiona Taverner, who's a paediatric anaesthetist and deputy director of research, audit and QI from the Flinders Medical Centre in Australia. Welcome to this podcast, Fiona, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me and allowing me to present this paper on behalf of my um, co-authors, Dr. Prakash, Krishnan, Dr. Robert Baird, and Professor Britta von Engen-Sturberg. Great. Can I please start by asking what were the primary aims of this study? Yeah, so infant inguinal hernia surgery is the most common, commonly performed operation in infants, and it's more common in infants with preterm birth, um, mechanical ventilation, and low birth weight. So it's inherently a heterogeneous but high-risk population. We know that infants have a high perioperative mortality compared to other paediatric age groups. And we know that the perioperative risk of adverse events is high, reported at around 35% in the Nectarine study. There's a complex inter interplay between competing surgical and anaesthetic risk for these patients. And so it's a really interesting and important patient population to consider. Most research, uh, when you look at the literature on infant inguinal hernia surgery, focuses on a single element or elements of care, such as uh, respiratory risk factors or timing or types of surgical um, techniques. But the aim of this paper was really to put all these factors to consider um, that, that need to be considered by the whole perioperative team. As an anaesthetist, um, I personally really wanted to increase my understanding of the surgical considerations. And I also, um, or we as a team, really wanted to put into focus the parent's perspective, which seems to be fairly overlooked so far in the paediatric anaesthesia literature. And really, as a team, we wanted to provide access to anyone involved in the infants undergoing including anaesthetists, surgeons, neonatologists, nurses, and technicians. And of course, if they were interested in reading the paper, parents. Thank you. So when would you say is the optimal time to repair an inguinal hernia in a neonate? Well, that's a very good question and not really an easy one to actually answer. There are a lot of factors to consider, and these are really the surgical anesthetic factors, of course, social factors and the complex interplay of these competing interests. When you look at surgical considerations, there's mixed evidence as to whether preterm infants actually have an increased risk of incarceration compared to their term counterparts, but there's certainly some suggestion that preterm infants do have an increased risk of incarceration. There's a concern um, of incarceration at all, which is the main surgical factor, which um, means that surgeons would like to um, consider operating on these infants earlier. There was a recent meta-analysis that did show that early repair does reduce the incarceration risk in these infants, but it does also increase the risk of post-operative respiratory complications. 
The jury is still relatively out on it, but there is a large randomised control trial currently underway comparing outcomes with repair done prior to infant's discharge from hospital and one and when done later at 55 to 60 weeks postmenstrual age. So far, the European Paediatric Surgeons Association do re recommend postponing until after discharge. As when you consider um, factors, there's really mainly good evidence for delay with increased postmenstrual age reducing perioperative risk. But, but counteracting these surgical and anaesthetic factors is considering the social and parental considerations. If you discharge an infant from, from hospital, will it be lost to follow up? And is there an increased risk to that infant if it incarcerates in the community? There are also social and geographic considerations of leaving hospital and then returning for an operation. For example, here in Adelaide, we look after infants that can be from anywhere from two to 3,000 kilometres away in the Northern Territory. And the considerations of asking those patients to return home and their parents and then return for a follow-up operation is a significant social as well as financial consideration. So considering the timing of surgery for an infant, you really need to consider all of these factors together to determine the optimal timing for each individual patient. Thank you. Um, can you elaborate on the pro-con debate, which I often have with surgeons in the anaesthetic room, regarding laparoscopic versus open technique for repair? Well, we have to remember that I personally am not a surgeon and that's why we got um, Dr. Robert Baird involved in, re in this review article to give his perspective from the surgical um, side of uh, the open versus laparoscopic debate. The open surgical technique is a traditional and still most commonly performed uh, surgical technique. When you look at laparoscopy, when you're preparing a single-sided hernia, the laparoscopic approach allows for a direct inspection of the contralateral internal ring and therefore allows the uh, both, both sides um, to be repaired at the same time if there is an open or a patent processes vaginalis on the other side. If that um, contralateral side is repaired at the same time, it does reduce the risk of a future metachronous contralateral hernia. So a metachronous contralateral hernia, um, just to remind everyone, is where there is a later occurrence of a hernia on the other side from the one that was originally repaired. The redu reduction of risk of a metachronous contralateral hernia is particularly true if one considers the lifetime, not just the childhood risk of developing an inguinal hernia. When you look at an open versus a laparoscopic approach, there are probably otherwise comparable outcomes. But there are concerns with laparoscopy. It's a challenging learning curve for surgeons and anaesthetists. There's variability in the individual surgical techniques that are um, utilised by surgeons. And so when you're looking at individual studies on outcomes, it's difficult to compare results. The surgery itself being performed laparoscopically does potentially at least increase anaesthetic complexity and it also subjects the patient to additional rare risks such as entry to intra-abdominal organs. There are several studies that suggest an increase in the recurrence rate of hernia, um, although this does remain controversial. Okay, let's move on to what we all want to know, which is what would you say is the best way to anaesthetize these patients for hernia repair? 
Well, let's think about what um, options there are. If we look at a spinal anaesthetic, we know that there is a reduction in perioperative adverse events when compared to general anaesthesia. There's a significantly lower, but not um, absent, around 2% risk of postoperative intubation with a spinal. There are several issues with spinal um, anaesthesia, such as When you consider general anaesthesia, in comparison, it does have a well-recognised increased risk of perioperative respiratory events and a postoperative intubation rate around 8 to 9%, depending on what, which cohort you look at. The postoperative intubation rate is lower when um, surgery is performed on infants that are older or later, so out of discharge compared to those performed while they're still in hospital. Portal or regional anaesthesia can be reduced, used to reduce opioid re requirements for those undergoing general anaesthesia. And there's always the potential concern of neurodevelopment. When you get looking at spinal versus general anaesthesia, what's the most commonly performed operation? Well, it's hard to know and there's little data that's being published. Since we actually published this article, uh, there was a sub-analysis of the Nectarine group um, published, which showed that around 80% of infants undergoing inguinal hernia surgery had general anaesthesia with or without a regional anaesthetic technique, and only around 18.5% had an awake regional anaesthetic technique, such as a spinal or caudal. And so, despite the evidence of an increased perioperative respiratory risk, it does appear to be that the general anaesthesia is the most common, or in Northern Europe at least. However, there is emerging evidence for regional or intravenous anaesthesia or sedation without airway instrumentation. Um, and uh, Prakash and his group in Canada have shown that this is feasible, including with laparoscopic surgery. Regional or intravenous, regional techniques with intravenous anaesthesia or sedation have shown a low rate of respiratory complications and postoperative intubation, although the studies have been fairly small to date. There's a potential or theoretical benefit in addition, um, from a neurodevelopmental perspective to avoid general anaesthesia. So the authorship team of both us here in Australia, New Zealand and in Canada are all doing significant work exploring this area of regional and sedation or intravenous anaesthesia. So watch this space. Thank you. So should we consider a spinal block for any particular patients? Yeah, look, I think it's definitely worth considering and it's really an operator and a patient or operator institution and patient dependent consideration. As I've said already, there are improved respiratory outcomes, including post-operative um, intubation is definitely reduced. But you really need to consider is this patient suitable and is there a suitable perioperative team, which includes a skilled anaesthetist with a volume of practice, um, a practice surgeon and other staff that are familiar with the technique. And I think that if um, people are going to consider performing spinal anesthesia, really like any other technique that's being performed, they need to consider reviewing their practice to ensure they maintain a low conversion rate and good postoperative and perioperative outcomes. Thank you. Um, can you comment on the choice of airway if, we're, if we've chosen to, to give a general anesthetic? Yeah, so there's good evidence that perioperative adverse events are lowest with a face mask or no airway, such as like nasal specs. Um, and then there's a slightly increased risk if you use a laryngeal mask in these infants. 
and finally using an endotracheal tube um, in pediatric patients in general and in these infants has been shown to have the highest risk of respiratory adverse events. Um, furthermore, there's been a randomized control done of infants undergoing a variety of surgeries showing a significantly increased risk using an endotracheal tube. However, there are obviously additional considerations that need to be taken. Um, is this an infant that has a high risk of reflux or regurgitation? If you're going to use an laryngeal mask, you need to consider whether there's going to be a poor fit. What's the comfort of the preoperative team with using either um, nasal specs, a face mask or a laryngeal mask for this particular patient? Is this a patient that has a risk of needing high ventilation pressures, such as an infant with chronic lung disease, which is significantly more likely in this patient population undergoing endotracheal hernia surgery? And so, at the end of the day, it needs to be an individual choice for each patient. Um, but where all other factors are considered equal, clinicians really should try and avoid an endotracheal tube um, or even a laryngeal mask for these patients. Sorry, Fiona, what, what are the main issues with, with intubation? You said that there is a higher complication rate. Yeah, so there's good literature to, to suggest that the risk of perioperative respiratory adverse events is significantly higher when using an endotracheal tube compared to either a face mask or a laryngeal mask. That's been shown in um, paediatric patients in general, such as in the apricot study, um, and in uh, other uh, Lancet randomized controlled trial um, and specifically looking at infants, again, preoperative respiratory adverse events. So I'm talking about um, bronchospasm, laryngospasm, okay. um, desaturation events. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, you. You've touched on this already, but can you please comment on parental anxieties around neurodevelopment and early anesthesia? Yeah, I think um, the issue of neurodevelopment and early anaesthesia um, in general, and particularly looking at infant inguinal hernia, is really interesting. So the GAS study um, was a randomised controlled trial of uh, infants undergoing inguinal hernia surgery, comparing a regional to a general anaesthetic technique. And this study showed equivalence in full-scale intelligence quotient between those undergoing general anaesthesia and regional, and perhaps was reassuring to a lot of anaesthetists. However, these results were then included in a meta-analysis which showed childhood exposure to general anaesthesia increased the risk of behaviour problems and neurodevelopmental disorder diagnoses. And another meta-analysis using the GAS study results uh, showed increased parental reports of behaviour problems. So overall, the evidence for neurodevelopmental impact remains questionable, and so practitioners should really still consider avoiding or delaying general anaesthesia in infants where it's possible. Given the large amount of work that has been done on looking at neurodevelopment in infants, it's really interesting to then have a look at how much work has been done on parental consent, which is really very little in the published literature. And when you look at um, parental consent specific to inguinal hernia surgery, so far we've been only able to find one survey of parents and that was focusing on neurodevelopment. In this survey, they said that 40% of parents were concerned about the impact of anesthesia on neurodevelopment, and 49% of parents were concerned about their baby undergoing anesthesia at all. So, really, I think the consideration is that there needs to be an increasing focus on consumer engagement in 
it, we're seeing that in general in medicine, um, but there's a need for more work exploring the concerns and priorities of parents and infants undergoing inguinal hernia surgery. Um, and we need to consider how we discuss and consent parents for these um, infants undergoing inguinal hernia surgery, given the potential for their parental concerns. Okay. Um, I'm just going to change tack finally. Um, what's the impact of different surgical and anaesthetic techniques in the resource-limited perioperative healthcare system? Yeah, so these are going to be a very institutional or health service specific considerations. What resources do you have and what resources are constrained? And so how are your um, surgical and anaesthetic techniques going to interplay with these resources? So where resources are constrained, um, it, for example, it may be less feasible or justified to use a complex equipment uh, if uh, budgetary constraints apply, such as is necessary for laparoscopy. Where you need um, more ex expertise for a particular um, technique, such as again laparoscopy, it may not be feasible if there's no surgeons that are available to utilise that technique. If your resource is that you um, have very high patient demands, like probably most of us at the moment, um, you might need a technique that ensures higher um, turnover and again laparoscopy might not fit that bill. <laughs> um, from an anaesthetic perspective, considering uh, again increased complex equipment such as potentially the use of high flow nasal oxygen might not be suitable where budgetary constraints apply. Um, the team at BC Children's Hospital is beginning to explore this question and looking at what the preferred surgical anaesthetic technique might be um, in a sustainable or eco-friendly setting where all other um, factors are equal. So they're doing CO2 admissions for these options and they believe where patient-related outcomes are similar, care teams could consider um, opting for the choice with the least planetary impact. Thank you so much, Dr. Tavener. This has been an interesting discussion. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to chat and we look forward to more contributions from you and your team. Thank you so much for inviting us. We just wanted to finish up by saying that there are many considerations and competing interests in looking after an infant undergoing inguinal hernia surgery. It really does require an individualized multidisciplinary approach to develop the optimal perioperative management plan to provide care for each infant. Thank you. Well, that wraps up our featured article of the month podcast for November 2023. This article will be available for free on the journal's website shortly. Follow us on Twitter on at PD Anesthesia and please join us for next month's featured article of the month. Until then, cheers.